And the first time I was so robotic, we had to re-record everything. Thankfully, Mike has, has gradually learned how to, how to sound like a human being. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Mike Leffer. And I'm Mike Ravenscroft. And you're listening to Extreme Uncertainty, the Don't Make Excuses episode. Mr. Ravenscroft. Mr. Leffer. How are you doing today, sir? I'm good. We're what, four episodes in, not counting our teaser? Uh, my mom is officially listening. Though, by her account, not understanding much of what we're talking about. Yeah, I, uh, I think I know where you're going with this. I haven't heard from Entrepreneur Magazine yet about an exclusive article. <laughs> you took your phone off vibrate, right? Uh, simply relying on the kindness of the network to share and share alike. You know, it's ironic after all these years working in venture capital that we are relying on organic growth. Well... You've got to get the big customers before you get the big money and uh, practice what we preach as investors. I guess it would just be so much easier if we didn't have to show any, you know, traction. <laughs> well, there's time left in the season yet. Speaking of, I have a question for you. What do you know about drug diversion? Oh, yeah, nothing. I mean, I was going to make a wisecrack and, and then I thought better of it. You so rarely pump the brakes on your wisecracks. I have a feeling there are opiates involved, so I'm treading lightly. Yeah, you're not wrong about that. Drug diversion is an unfortunate up-at-night issue for hospital administrators. The problem is this. Occasionally, hospital staff, many of whom have opiate and other substance dependencies themselves, will steal prescription medications intended for patients. And obviously, that's bad for any number of reasons and it opens up the hospital to a huge amount of risk. But there are other challenges related to compliance violations that hospitals deal with that come up just as frequently. Some of these are incidental, like a hospital employee accidentally opening up a patient file they don't have privileges or, or should have access to, and others are more nefarious, like the ones that lead to data breaches and HIPAA violations. Right, and those are obviously both big problems that no one wants to have particularly now at a time when hospitals have enough on their plates as it is. Couldn't agree more. And those are the problems that our guest today set out to solve back in 2014. And I, I couldn't be more excited to have this guest on the show today. Nick Culbertson is the CEO of ProTennis, a healthcare technology company based in Baltimore. ProTennis uses artificial intelligence to detect and prevent compliance violations and incidents of drug diversion for leading healthcare systems nationally. ProTennis was recognized in Forbes as a 2020 best startup employer and a cool vendor in artificial intelligence by Gartner. ProTennis received the 2019 Innovation of the Year in Data Security Award by Healthcare Informatics and was recognized as one of the best places to work by Modern Healthcare in 2018, 2019, and 2020. The company has grown from a team of two back in 2014 to over 100 employees in 2020. And ProTennis recently completed a Series C financing in August of 2019, bringing its total amount of capital raised to over $36 million. Nick is a former Green Beret and served in the US Army for almost a decade before going back to medical school and becoming a researcher at Johns Hopkins University. He left med school to co-found ProTennis and he scaled the company in Baltimore. In our interview, Nick talks about his journey from getting the company started to their Series C and how he navigated growing into a leadership role from managing a team of two to over 160 years. We're super excited to bring you this conversation and my favorite one yet. We hope you enjoy it. Well, Nick, really, really excited to have you on the show. Uh, been looking forward to this podcast for a while. So to get it kicked off, can you give us the quick elevator pitch on Pro Tennis? Yes. Uh, so Pretennis is uh, uh, about two years old. Uh, it's a healthcare compliance analytics company, uh, which simply put is um, uh, an approach to using AI and automation to identify 
compliance violations and hospital system workflows. Um, so a couple of examples are we identify um, HIPAA violations or maybe uh, security policy violations and access to medical records, or we identify um, employees who might be stealing uh, from the hospital system like narcotics and maybe using those drugs while we're on the job and putting put, um, patients at risk. So I like to think of it uh, affectionately as a super sexy technology in a very unsexy space, um, back office compliance. A lot of people, when you think about AI and automation in, in healthcare, you think about precision medicine or population health or genomics or really interesting patient outcomes. But we're excited about being able to use this technology to make the back office of hospital systems more efficient and, and reduce risk for hospital systems overall. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Nick, to, to follow up on that, can you talk a bit about the the problems that you're tackling? So you sort of mentioned a couple there. Uh, so one, I think, is uh, you guys call it drug um, uh, reappropriation. What's the term you guys use for that? Drug diversion. Drug, drug diversion. diversion. Can you explain for our audience what that is? Yeah. I, so I didn't know about this term uh, until we started getting into talking to compliance officers and understanding how hospital administrators, what really keep them up at night. Um, drug diversion, simply put, is when you're diverting drugs that are supposed to go to patients away uh, to something else. Uh, and so there's two typical scenarios. Um, you might have an anesthesiologist or a nurse who pulls a pill from uh, vending cabinets at a hospital system, and they gain the system in some way where, you know, patient gets one or and I get one or, or you know, uh, I say that I wasted it when I really didn't. Uh, all these little teeny loopholes um, that are are subtly documented in, in little trends and how they interact with the medical record or the dispensing cabinet themselves. Uh, and then, you know, the two things that happen are either they take it themselves uh, and, and uh, or they, they take it for sale on the black market uh, and they're just trying to farm. Um, farm those drugs out. So it's it's a little different than prescription fraud. Uh, it's different than patient diversion, which is when patients are going to different clinics and taking advantage of, of the system just to get drugs. Um, and the unfortunate thing is this: the way that this is typically detected is finding an employee who has poor performance because of the, the fact that they're um, high while working. And so they're putting patients at risk. And when I first found out about this, the, um, the reason it was a big deal is that an employee was found overdosed in the broom closet. Uh, and so that's the state of detection uh, when it's far too late. Uh, and we realized quickly that the AI that we were using to analyze workflows could be applied to this. And, and now we're able to identify cases much earlier and uh, again, save the employees from themselves and also, you know, protect the patients from being put in what harm's way. So how, so how do you guys use AI to tackle a problem like that? So the foundation of our model is that we build a profile on um, a patient. We look at what their treatments are, their um, medications, their problem list, their encounters. Uh, and try to understand what kind of patient that is. You understand the difference between a, uh, you know, an orthopedic patient or just someone who goes to the Durham clinic every few years. Um, then we build a profile on the employee based on their job, their title, their tenure, um, and, and really understand what kind of person that is. So we can understand the difference between a cardiologist and a cardiac uh, nurse, for example. Then we take those two profile sets and we weave them together using system access logs that describe what types of profiles of employees are accessing what profiles of patients and how they interact with that data and pass it to one to another along the care continuum. Uh, and so basically we're creating a virtual uh, impression or fingerprint of what's happening in the real world. And because of uh, certain regulations like meaningful use, hospital systems are required to document a tremendous amount of activity for billing and compliance purposes. The problem is the average hospital system generates about 60 million access logs uh, a month. And so to have a human do spot checks or random audits to understand, um, you know, for example, going back to drug diversion, how a pill from this dispensing cabinet matches a um, pill that's been administered to a patient several hours later, uh, that kind of reconciliation and, and um, data analysis process is a great opportunity for AI to come in, understand all these little nuances, ask tons of questions, 
uh, and then using a machine learning classifier predict what is likely to be a violation of, of some possible policy. Got it. So that the same a- logic then applies to things like um, preventing data breaches. So you have employees that are accessing records that um, you know you guys describe as not being within their purview. Um, and so I'm curious whether it's are, are you guys sort of helping hospitals deal with the uh, the HIPAA infractions that are like uh, incidental that they don't realize are infractions, or is it sort of malicious activity? I mean, wh- which one is is a bigger problem for hospitals? Uh, they're they're both problems, and it's difficult to quantify because it really is a spectrum. Um, on one end, you have a high volume of low risk incidents, which is oftentimes benevolent um, people concerns. You know, I'm going to look up my mom's medical record so I can help her with her treatment. She knows I'm doing it, but I don't have written permission. So it technically is illegal. It is a violation of, of privacy um, because it's not documented as, as HIP requires it to be. Um, it could be, you know, I saw a patient on the news uh, who was taken to the hospital. I'm going to quickly just pop in and take a peek. You know, I'm not going to do anything with it. I just want to know. Uh, oh, my coworker is out. I'm going to check to see what's going on. Maybe they're having a baby or something to, you know, I don't like my boss. I'm going to look at their record to I'm going to steal celebrities information and sell it to hospital systems to uh, I've been compromised in a phishing attack. And like in 2015, when, when Anthem was hit, you know, millions of medical records are being siphoned off someone's medical record account or someone's access to a medical record, you know, appropriately logged in and everything, but has this anomalous behavior of downloading tons of records and, and um, you know, obviously using those for, for inappropriate purposes. So I, I think about it as um, you know, the military, we have the sea Bernie uh, spectrum where, you know, there's like low risk of nuclear attack, but if it happens, it's really big deal. And then you have a high risk of just kind of the the run of the mill uh, explosions um, that could happen, high, uh, um, you know, like um, ID or, or whatnot, high volume, but they're pretty contained. They're they're much smaller. Um, the radius, the blast radius is a lot smaller. So it's the same thing here. You high volume of that low risk, um, suspicious activity, and then a low volume of the high risk stuff. And so if you're not analyzing both ends of the spectrum, you're really missing out on on what potentially could be a, a, a big deal of exposure for the organization. Nick, so clearly you're, you're tackling some really big issues with patient privacy, uh, regulatory compliance, and, and drug diversion. But you, you just mentioned C. Bernie. For, for everyone who doesn't know, can you please share your, your backstory here and how you yeah, got to Yeah, I apologize for I, uh, um, for, for dropping the, the, the grenade in there as, as it will, but, um, <laughs> so prior, prior to tennis, I served for eight years in the military. I, I worked as a green beret and, and had opportunity to work on, uh, another, a number of really interesting problem solving missions. Uh, I specialize in human intelligence, which is gathering information from informants and building together, um, mission plans based on that Intel. Uh, and so when I came into healthcare, I got out of the military, I started med school, uh, which was my plan all, all along. I wanted to do research. Um, I met a, uh, a colleague, now colleague of mine, friend of mine, um, Robert Lord, who has a background working at hedge fund. Uh, and so similar non-traditional med student background. We met, we wanted to work on a research project together and kind of combined um, both our backgrounds and uh, started this research project around analyzing workflows. And one thing led to another, uh, unexpectedly turned out that then we uh, started this company and um, have now grown it to about over 100 employees in the past five years. And wow, first of all, but, but two, what was it like making that jump from med school, which, you know, you're on this relatively stable trajectory to head first into forming a startup with someone you basically just met. Um, thank you. Uh, what was it like? It wasn't that big of a transition, um, just because from my military experience, I had been used to kind of stepping into the unknown. And um, I've learned that in life, you need a guiding star, but you want to take advantage of opportunities that are in front of you. And if you just say, hey, I want to be a, um, 
uh, neurosurgeon and that's it, I'm going to turn down this really great plastics uh, residency that I, or, or fellowship that I got because it's not neuroscience or, or whatnot. Um, you never know what kind of really interesting opportunities could, could pop up. And so the combination of, of um, taking a chance and um, spurious opportunities that pop up. So for us specifically, um, Hopkins at the time had released a report on, you know, it's number one in NIH funding, Hopkins where I went to medical school, um, number one in NIH funding, but, you know, bottom of the list in terms of commercial um, translation. And so I wanted to spur more of an entrepreneurial environment at Hopkins. And so this research project that we were working on, we were encouraged to go through this accelerator. I had no idea of anything about the business world. I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't want to run a company. Um, I just was not interested. But what I liked is I was getting dedicated time to work on this research project uh, and actually some funding to do it. Over time, what I learned is it's a lot easier to get capital um, in the uh, private sector than it is to raise grant money um, for research. You can innovate a lot faster um, outside of the ivory tower. Uh, and, and ultimately, in the end, I'm doing exactly what I wanted to do, which is running an R&D team, solving really interesting problems, working with really bright people. And so if I didn't take that risk and just try something, um, that if I had failed, I would have just gone back and finished med school and it would have been no big deal. Um, but because I did it and because it went through, I feel like I'm doing my dream job at this point, which I never could have imagined. Nick, was the, uh, was, was the idea that you were working on, uh, you, so, you, so you said that that came about through the research that you were doing um, with this colleague of yours. Um, was there something there that you had developed uh, beyond the idea that you could take out? Or was the tech platform something that was at that point a, a hypothetical and you needed to raise uh, your angel round to actually build it out? Uh, it it was um, we the, the the first version of our analytics, which when we started, we we there's lots of anomalous behaviors and workflows. We started with, with HIPAA violations because going into a medical record is um, kind of the biggest anomaly that happens. And then once you go in, there's all sorts of other types of anomalous behaviors that can occur. Um, and so the first level of algorithm, it was really um, uh, it was fully it was functional, but really on a really small scale. So it was basically a combination of some Python scripts and some Excel spreadsheets and some dashboards that would look at an employee's behavior or patient's access log and kind of stitch together um, some information and identify the outlier, um, so to speak. To convert that into a system that can operate on, as I mentioned, 60 million medical record access logs uh, a month and, and run around the clock and, uh, you know, operate, you know, seamlessly uh, across many hospital systems. Michael Viner and I didn't have the skill set to do that. Um, and so we, need, we knew we needed to recruit, um, you know, a really large bench of, of talented people. And fortunately, being in Baltimore, um, it, there's just this uh, resource uh, in the Baltimore DC corridor of having um, three-letter agencies, DOD contractors, cybersecurity firms that specialize in very large data sets, uh, very um, uh, secure environments, uh, very complicated problems. And so it was, it was real natural to recruit a number of engineers and data scientists that, that helped us build the enterprise version of, of the original um, kind of prototype that Robert and I built. And how did you go from that prototype and, and an idea to raising and your initial round of funding? What was that experience? So I, I, I hadn't recognized this as we were going through the process, um, but starting a company, uh, in retrospect, it's very clear, starting a company is um, really about going around um, a, a cycle of um, getting funds either from customers or from investors to uh, recruiting a team to building products to getting customers and then you use those customers to get more funding or or you get more revenue from them and then you get more team and then you build more product and around and around and around and you and um you know you start to build a flywheel and it gets faster and eventually is self-sustaining the problem is there's no start point on that circle uh and so it's not like to start you always start with a you know a product or something like you have to kind of like 
um, kickstart the process to get around. And, and the reality of it is, is and, and what really entrepreneurs need to do is at some point you need to fake one piece of that cycle. And I don't mean in a disingenuous way. I mean it is in like you need to kickstart the system. And so, for example, you can fake funding by self-funding or using friends and family to get some funding. You can fake a team by using free interns or like just uh, getting some friends to like do it, um, you know, part-time or, or in their free time. You can fake a product, which is what, what we initially did by using a wizard of eyes or um, some type of mock-up of the product where you communicate to the customer and say, this is what it's intended to do, this is what it's designed to do, you know, give me feedback on the look and feel uh, and, you know, talk about the value of the product. Um, or you can ultimately fake customers, which is uh, typically done through like a free proof of concept or a pilot. Uh, and so every company somehow, uh, you know, I, I, again, it's not disingenuous, but you somehow need to fake one of those steps. And the reason that startups fail is when they go around that cycle and they come back to it, they typically fake the same thing again. Um, and the rule is when you come back around, you have to have it working. So in our case, um, we kind of built this prototype that was mocked up and, you know, hobbled together across Excel and Python scripts, like I mentioned. Um, but it communicated the idea of the concept. And with that, we got a pilot with Hopkins that allowed us to get funding that allowed us to get the team together. And the team built like an initial beta version, um, that was a little bit more advanced and sophisticated and demonstrated more value that got us some more customers. We raised more money. We got a bigger team. We built more of our products. Um, and, and that cycle now continues to this day. Uh, classic example of that going wrong is Theranos. You know, you fake a product, raise more money, uh, build a bigger team, fake more products, build a, get more customers, raise more money until some point it just implodes. Um, and so it's, it's critical for entrepreneurs to realize that you need to somehow kickstart the system, but you have to do that with integrity, clarity, transparency, and, and really understand how you're going to ultimately solve um, that, that uh, mock-up uh, in terms of what, whatever step you faked. Can you talk about some of the challenges there for you guys? You know, what, what were the, the harder parts of, of sort of getting that, getting that uh, process started? Well, I think the hardest part is kind of painting the vision. Um, when you're an entrepreneur, you're always, you know, they say like, don't get ahead of your, don't, don't, what is it? Lean over your skis. Don't be too far over your skis. Um, and that's really a balancing act. If you, you know, in academia, uh, the, the background that, that Robert and I had come from, my co-founder and I had come from, you say everything very literally in terms of what you've done. And, and so we would communicate like, you know, well, we haven't done anything yet. We're thinking about doing this. But that's not what you do in entrepreneurship. You need to say what's going to happen is is we're going to do this, and this is the way we think it's going to happen. And, we're, and you know our intention is that we're going to close three customers in the next you know twelve months or whatever it is. That's not lying, um, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs will take that too far, and it comes across the uh, the wrong way. And so what entrepreneurs need to be really good at is talking about the future in a way that's authentic and tangible and uh, inspiring to your team and investors and customers to get them bought into that vision so that they wanna go along with you. Um, but it's all about delivering results. Uh, and I love the formula, so success equals expectations minus results. And so if you deliver uh, results that are greater than your expectations, you're going to be fine. But if you constantly deliver less results than you set up for the expectations, um, you're, you're not going to uh, earn the trust of investors or employees or, or whatnot. So it's really scary to get the first hire that maybe is quitting their job. Or, or in our case, we had a, um, a PhD that was moving states to, to work with us right out of, after finishing a data science fellowship and taking a tremendous amount of risk. Uh, and the only way we were able to do that was by being very transparent about what we had, where we were going, you know, the opportunity and not setting unreasonable expectations or misleading them in any way. And then ultimately now delivering on those expectations. And, you know, I'm thrilled to say that that first employee is still with us after six years of, of working together. Wow. That's fantastic. How, how specifically to investors do you, manage those expectations? I mean, everyone gives the up and to the right J curve on their projections. Do you have a strategy specifically? 
Uh, again, I think this is a little bit of a um, an art firm form that every entrepreneur uh, learns to um, hone over over time. It's really something that's kind of um, everyone does a little bit differently. As I mentioned, when we started, my co-founder and I were very literal and, and didn't like talking about the unknowns because we wanted to prove it. And we had to learn to kind of explain, you know, this is the potential, um, you know, these are the risks that we're worried about. These are how we're going to mitigate them um, and, and talk about that fewer, uh, future um, direction. But at the same time, not being unreasonable. Um, and, you know, I was I actually recently looked at some of our early models and it's interesting because if you map all of the models that we had and in, in against reality every year, that Jave curve kind of shapes out a little less and less to be more realistic. And it's still great growth, but it is not that hockey stick that, that most entrepreneurs think their business is. And startups take a long time um, to get going. We didn't we weren't commercial um, and, and really selling a lot of deals for. Uh, about two and a half years um, before it picked up. And this was supposed to be a six month project uh, that I was just gonna do and build a company and go back to med school really quick. Um, and so I think it takes a lot of, um, I don't know, patience, uh, a lot of feedback from, from mentors and investors to make sure that you're communicating um, authentically and, and actually delivering on those results. So what was that uh, first sort of inflection point when you started to realize that there was something much bigger potentially at play? Um, so you mentioned that you got a, uh, it sounds like your first contract was with Hopkins, um, which must have been very big validation for you guys. Um, beyond that, you know, was there, uh, were, were there a, a series of events or like anything in isolation that you just thought what we have here is potentially a lot bigger than what we started out with? Well, I think um, I can remember the first time our AI caught uh, a violation um, and it turned out not just to be a, um, you know, a HIPAA breach, it turned out to be something that needed to be reported to the, the head of medical uh, affairs and, and BP medical affairs. And it, it was an incredible ethical um, dilemma that, that the hospital faced um, in terms of identifying this employee's bad behavior. Um, that was really validating to see it actually work um, and not just talk about what could be, but actually see it, see it done. Um, I think, uh, you know, being validated by getting around that, that flywheel that I mentioned, you know, actually having people come in and enjoy working and enjoy delivering new product and seeing new product delivered. So I don't, I don't know that there was just like one moment in time where it was like, okay, this is all working, but it's like a, it's like a um, cascade of, 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 you know, of little things that seem to all be going in the right direction. Fair enough. So uh, Nick, you, you mentioned um, earlier that you currently have uh, so over hundred employees. Yes. So um, obviously, uh, and, and you know, I guess I'll sort of step back and say that um, of all the companies we've had in the show so far, you guys are sort of the the, um, uh, the largest, uh, the most funded, um, and what you've built is is extremely impressive. I'm, I'm curious though, you know, given that you're uh, six years in now, you know, a company uh, that's two people looks a lot different than a company that's you know 102. And I, I'm curious how uh, you sort of feel like you've evolved as a CEO and how the sort of company has shifted, given that you're now Series C funded, um, you have over 100 employees and, you know, you guys are, are starting to, to really hit scale. You know, what, what are what, what are some of the challenges to that? You know, what are what are the opportunities that opens up? Just curious your, your thoughts there. Yeah, it's a it's a really tough question to answer. And I feel like it's going to be different for every company and that, you know, no two companies have the same challenges or um, dynamics as they grow. But I think one theme that's consistent is the, uh, I feel like my job's changed every six months. Um, what it's like to, you know, hire a first set of people or, or sell your first few deals is so much different than running, um, running a C-suite or a leadership team. Um, raising a seed round is so different than raising a series C uh, or, you know, managing um, large uh, customer user groups and, and kind of mixing expectations and, you know, trying to get a consensus among customers on like what direction our company should go is so different than, you know, um, kind of heeding your first customers, your first betas uh, feedback and really helping sure that you um, making sure that you develop what they're looking for. 
Uh, and so I think it's really, I'm a really big proponent of mentorship. Um, you know, every six months I'm doing something that I haven't, hadn't done before. And so I'm constantly looking for um, mentors that uh, can help kind of like see, help me see around corners or give feedback. Um, a lot of people say they have mentors, but they don't formalize that relationship. And so I always advise people to actually go to someone and ask them literally, like, will you be my mentor? I'd like to talk to you for six months, once a month or every other month. This is what I'd like to learn. This is what I'd like to get at it. Um, and, and doing that does two things. One, it, um, you know, typically, like when people have asked me this, it's a little flattering and you're going to put more effort into it. But it also puts structure to the program so that it's not just like, uh, you know, my old research in a PI, you know, he's my mentor because like I met with him every once in a while, or he gave me feedback. And if you went and said, hey, did you mentor Nick? He'd be like, no, not really. He just was in a lab, you know. And so it puts more like concrete clarity around like what the program is and what you're getting out of it. Uh, and and I, I would not have been able to... Um, get to where I am now without having a, a combination of different types of mentors that taught me things uh, from different perspectives, different age groups, different ethnicities, different skill sets, different uh, educations um, to really help build up that um, capacity as, as your role changes over time. So, so Nick, go ahead, Mike. Thank you, Mike. So Nick, what are the, say three biggest takeaways you've had from these mentor relationships and maybe other sources as well that have enabled you to scale with your company over time? Hmm. I don't know if I'll be able to think of three on the spot, but I can definitely think of the first one. Um, and it sounds so cheesy and everyone always hears like, trust your instinct, trust your gut. I heard that so many times in my life and really didn't know what it meant. Um, until uh, I had an early invest, uh, early um, uh, mentor, we were maybe like six people, six person team. And we met this uh, guy that was, uh, had a really interesting background, could have been like combo CFO, COO um, role for us. And we got pretty far along in the uh, um, discussions. We made an offer and he countered with something that was just so unreasonable in terms of stock ownership. Um, something that, you know, any investor looking at our cap table would have like, why does this person who just joined have so much of the company? And, you know, I was really excited about working with this person it was like such a great fit, but I didn't know how to like bridge the gap between this missed expectations. And I felt like even if we had bridged that gap, it would just be a really difficult um, situation because either, you know, one of us, one of us would get what we wanted and the other would feel kind of awkward about it. Um, so I had this feeling and I went and sat down and talked to my, uh, talked to my mentor about it and described it. And he just said, well, you know what the answer is? And, and that was it. And I was like, don't hire him. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, oh, like, oh, well, you know, all this stuff I was explaining to you, like, this is why it doesn't work. And this is why it's bad. He was like, you just answered yourself right there. And I guess what I, you know, in retrospect, I think what I was doing was like looking for some kind of validation or permission to somehow still hire him or some kind of conversation to go back. Um, but I'd already solved the whole issue. I just didn't feel comfortable um, actually taking action on that and then deciding that like, okay, this seems like a great opportunity, but I'm going to pass uh, because it's just not a good fit. Uh, and so, again, I feel like everyone has heard one time in their life, trust your gut. But I think it took that practical example um, um, to really, really kind of sink in. Was this? Can we try to think of more? Or is that good? No, I mean that that's great. And then, and the the follow up I've got here is: was this intuition and and gut check you developed? And I don't want to make it too leading of a question, but how did your military experience help you here? Was this a an artifact of that at all? Well, I mean. I think most uh, people who are in the entrepreneurial world know that um, I, I, gosh, what I think veteran entrepreneurs have a five times more higher success rate than, than the average entrepreneur. And I think that's true because uh, in the military, you do get exposed to uh, uh, situations where you're uncomfortable. You get exposed to um, really challenging teamwork environments. Um, you know, you get exposed to a lot of different diversity. And, not being in the military does not 
prohibit you from being successful or having a great, you know, um, uh, a career, but it's just time and time again, we hear about really talented um, veterans doing something really interesting. I've known a number of people from my military career that just like have inspired me with what they're doing and and how they've been able to achieve it. Um, So I think just that, that, you know, being able to problem solve and, you know, a semi-permissive, austere, you know, uncomfortable environment, when you come back um, into the civilian world and and get faced with the same situation, I think you have a higher tendency to to jump right to the problem solving step rather than saying, you know, I don't know, I've just, I don't have the rule book for this and I'm the pathway. And there really is no rules in um, entrepreneurship. And I don't, I don't, of course, there's laws and regulations and ethics and all this stuff that you need to follow, but no one is, you know, no one knew what healthcare compliance analytics was before we coined that term and started like talking about this as, as something hospitals needed. And so it wasn't like I could go to something as like the example of what that was. It required a combination of feedback from customers, like mentors, like kind of um, uh, brainstorming just to put that all together. So Nick, uh, switching gears um, a little bit. Um, so uh, over this past summer, um, there's obviously been uh, an enormous amount of uh, social upheaval um, with the, um, I don't wanna say the advent of the Black Lives Matter movement because it was um, certainly around before this summer, but but everything um, kicked it up a notch. Um, everything uh, escalated in many ways for many reasons. And um, I, I wanted to ask you about this because uh, your company has a very vocal uh, stance on uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and you wrote a, a fantastic blog post um, on your website about um, basically the, the situation and, and where you guys stand as a company. And, and I don't want to um, you know, paraphrase it. I'd love to sort of hear you know, how uh, your company reacted to the events of the summer um, and sort of how uh, your sort of, um, well, just what your take is on that. Yeah. Uh, so like many people, um, you know, already being drained and um, uncomfortable with the circumstances of the economy, the pandemic, you know, health risk, just kind of the the um, um, increase of activity and stuff that's been going on not not only for years and but but decades at this point, centuries. I don't know. Um, it, it was just it was just too much. Um, and I think the the volume just kind of increasing over time really took its toll emotionally um, on on a number of people on the team, myself included. And that feeling of of um, being helpless and and you know like thinking like I want to protest, but I, I I feel like I'm putting my health at risk to even do that. And these really difficult con- um, ultimatums that that, um, that you feel powerless to have any kind of impact. And I think you know. Uh, part of life is making sure that you feel like you have control and, and you are in power and that you are having impact and that you are moving things positively forward. Um, and so I, I recall back to a, um, gosh, what is it? Seven of habits of, of the highly effective people. Is that the name of it? One of those, uh, I think it's the first or second habit is um, to think about things that are in your sphere of influence versus things that are not in your sphere of influence. And my team gets together um, on a weekly basis and, you know, kind of has our uh, status sync and, you know, lots of communication out of the week. But at one of those points we talked about, you know, what are the things that are out of our influence, like um, police reform or, you know, how rapidly the pandemic is spreading or, you know, systematic inequality uh, that we can't change overnight. Then we talked about the things that are in our sphere of influence, like what we do with our time, how we talk to people, how we recruit, how we look at um, uh, bias in our in our analytics. And, and we basically came up with a list of like, here's the things we can do, and we're going to focus on that. And and no, it's not going to solve anything overnight, and and, and it's going to take a lot of effort. But um, we really felt strongly that uh, you know our company has. Um, you know, as it's grown, I think it's become one of the, one of the many Baltimore success stories. Uh, and so we thought we wanted to use our, our leadership position in that way to, to really um, set an example. Uh, and so I'm not a, a black founder. I, I'm 
their typical white male with a beard running a startup tech startup. Um, that being said, I, uh, there's nothing saying that you know it's this is a um, this is a problem for the United States, it's a problem for our world, it's a problem for Baltimore, and I think everyone needs to think about how they are either helping the situation or hurting the situation for any real impact to happen. Very well said, and you know one of the things that um, that, that we've been talking about um, on this issue is that as a startup, you're you're putting out so many fires all the time, um, and you're struggling to you know make payroll. So so something like um, you know are our hiring practices um, accurately reflecting the population we're serving? Are we you know in some ways it, it's it's hard to hire people because you can't pay as well as like you know um, Amazon Web Services, right? Um, and so so oftentimes uh, it seems like these things. If there's not like an active um, approach taken, um, you know, they, they really do um, fall by the wayside. And so I'm just curious, you know, is, is that something that um, I, I'm not really sure how to frame the question. I mean, it, it, it seems as though you guys have thought this through very, very clearly uh, and you sort of articulated a plan for the company. And I'm just curious, you know, if you have any advice for founders who are trying to do that, but don't necessarily have you know, uh, think that they have the time or that, you know, that, that it's going to cost too much money. I'm just sort of curious what your, what your advice to a founder, uh, would be, who is, who is feeling that same kind of feeling of frustration that you described before. Yeah. I, I think the first step, um, with, uh, uh, any type of inequality or system or anything else in entrepreneur is don't make excuses. Uh, you know, if you go into it with the mindset of like, oh, it's really hard hire. We don't have a lot of money. Like, you know, you don't go into investors and say, oh, it's hard to get customers. It's really difficult to sell enterprise. Like you, you don't want to have that same mindset in anything you do in your business. And it's so easy um, for myself or, or, or uh, other people who, who feel like they don't know what the solution is to kind of fall back and just say, it's, it's too hard. Like, you know, the, you know, we're not, we're not a big company. We can't solve this problem. When I think about Baltimore specifically, I think there's this really interesting um, opportunity. You know, we have the high, uh, I, I want to say 30 plus percent um, uh, population of, of black people in Baltimore. Yet we are not one of the highest um, cities in the country of, of black uh, tech uh, people in tech. At the same time, I mentioned earlier that the talent pool here is amazing for technology, for cybersecurity, for um, uh, DOD and other agencies, and this really great pool. I mean, there's no there's no question why Amazon moved their headquarters outside of um, DC. It's because there's like you know a tremendous amount of talent that they can pull in for a number of their um, programs that they're working on, and so. That the combination of um, you know what makes Baltimore great and what uh, Baltimore really needs to fix, I think there's an interesting opportunity there. And so, we've thought about um, one creating different um, you know mentorship programs where uh, we can actually recruit maybe more junior people um, uh, from um, programs to like train them up using the the great bench of talent that we've made on our uh, at Pertennis. So having all of these really senior engineers, can we create different types of internship or, or mentoring or, or um, apprenticeship type programs to develop more tech? Um, another thing that we've thought of is, you know, we want to um, work with other startups and other universities in the area uh, to make sure that we're recruiting effectively, that we are um, leveraging resources out there. You know, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Like so many people are already thinking about this, and Baltimore specifically has a number of really great programs. Npower um, is one that we work with, and, and Catalyte are two great examples I can think off the top of my head um, that are have a specific mission around um, diversity and in, in, in tech. Uh, and I can't tell you how many times I've talked to another entrepreneur in Baltimore that says, "Oh, it's really hard to hire here." And I say, "Have you talked to Catalyte?" And they say, "No." You know, we've we're looking in Austin, we're looking in San Francisco, or you're recruiting out of New York. And it's like, there's something in our backyard that we should be tapping into and, and um, giving more attention. And so as a company, um, you know, both inside in terms of how we were doing things with our recruiting and how we were getting good slate um, metrics uh, in terms of diversity, all the way to outside and how we were talking about this with other companies and other peers of ours, um, just trying to encourage positive movement in the right direction. So, so Nick, this really resonates with me as a Baltimore native. Um, and I appreciate your commitment to the Baltimore ecosystem and community. 
having raised $36 million plus at this point of outside funding, have you ever had an investor ask you to move to another location and move your headquarters? And how do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Um, so you're right in that most of our funding has come uh, from outside of Baltimore. I, I will throw out that a lot of our funding uh, is here in, in Baltimore. Um, uh, so our first investors, you know, our actually very first investor, John Kamak, is a very active angel investor and seed investor in Baltimore. A number of angel investors are all based here. Um, Baltimore does not have a great Series A uh, and, and beyond Um uh, access to, to capital. And so we did have to go outside and, you know, it's not until folks like you, Mike, and, and I are going to continue to raise more capital to get more access to capital here um, that, that will solve that problem ultimately. So with that, we have absolutely been asked to move um, or, or, or asked when we will move. Uh, and I've had so many people say like, you know, when are you going to open up a branch in New York or Silicon Valley? Uh, one investor I spoke to, their thesis is that they want to build uh, economy in, in um, shit, where is it? Columbus, Ohio? Uh, Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, I think it's Columbus, Ohio. And they wanted us to move there. And we thought, you know, like Columbus is a great city. I've been there many times, but Baltimore has so much going for it. And the reality is, is as I mentioned earlier, there's this really unique talent pool in Baltimore um, that makes setting up an enterprise B2B, highly secure environment company like ours, um, the best place to start it. I honestly think that if we started um, you know, for tennis anywhere else, we wouldn't have been able to recruit a number of the great people that are on our team. And certainly if we wanted to do front end, uh, you know, iPhone app or something like that, maybe the Valley or, or Austin or some other place, we'd get a better uh, bench of, of front end developers. Um, but because of the large scale infrastructure that we have in the back end, we just feel like it's better here. And so we always respond back um, to investors that we don't have any plans in moving. We do have about 30% of our team is remote um, to fill in gaps and we expect to maintain that. But our, our heart and our headquarters will always be in Baltimore. Um, it's a big part of our culture. It's you know, a big part of our um, origin story. And it's it's um, something that we, you know, we want to continue to help um, support and give back to the community as well. What's one opportunity for improvement here in the Baltimore ecosystem you are hoping someone else will uh, try and, and go out and solve? One of my biggest complaints um, about the Baltimore ecosystem is that everyone tries to reinvent the wheel. Um, I can't tell you how many accelerators or incubators have kind of rolled through uh, and, and built up from the grounds, uh, you know, their, their own kind of momentum and rather than looking at the things that are already exist uh organizations like hopkins or university of maryland have um spurred so much um uh, of a platform that that could be built upon and, and, and leverage uh, i couldn't list out the number of um programs that are already existing that are great um and so i feel like whatever problem it is 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 needs to be built on the shoulders of the people that have come before or continue to work on it and, and leverage what's there um, rather than and from starting from scratch. So that's not exactly answering your question, Mike, but any any kind of problem, for example, like getting more seed capital or Series A capital in, in, in Baltimore, there's, um, there's already kind of foundations or work that's been done that could be built upon um, to ensure that those previous efforts don't get undermined, uh, but also like future efforts are, are, you know, building up instead of starting over. Mm. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So as we get ready to wrap up, what's one piece of advice you have for young entrepreneurs out there who are starting a business or have already started? Uh, I think I, um, mentioned this before, but I, I can't stress enough how, how much mentorship has helped me get to where I am today. Uh, I think it's really critical that people get very comfortable asking for mentorship and, and guidance um, for folks. I, I um, also try to turn around and, and offer as much I've learned to other people too, and have a policy to you know never say no and, and uh, help. Um, 
uh, other entrepreneurs or other people that are getting started too. And so uh, I, I've known a number of people that have kind of that mindset of, um, you know, I've got it or, or kind of a fear of being, um, you know, uh, wrong or, you know, exposed uh, for not being a pro and, and perfect. Uh, and so the amount of humility that's required to be a good mentee is really difficult. And, and I don't think um, so many of the people that are successful out there would be where they were if it weren't for their teachers, their mentors, their coaches um, that have helped them get to where they are today. So be humble, ask for help. Um, and, and I think it's just going to give you that much more of an advantage. Nick, what's your favorite book or podcast and, and why? Uh, I'm, I am uh, on and off with podcasts um, and I get into them for a while and I I really know them and I get it fall off, but books is a lot easier to answer for me. Um, one of my favorite books is um, Not in My Neighborhood by uh, uh, what's his name? Antero, um, uh, Antero Piatella, I think it is. Uh, and it, it's, a, it's a history of the housing markets in Baltimore. And I, I've never read a book that's so interestingly or, or, or um, in such a nuanced way kind of paints the history of, of bigotry and, and systematic racism um, that has built up over, over centuries or, or decades. Um, it's especially interesting being um, from Baltimore and, and, you know, knowing the different neighborhoods or streets and kind of always understanding that, you know, there's like good parts of Baltimore, not so good parts of Baltimore. And then hearing why some of those places um, uh, have been, um, you know, on the path that they are and, how, uh, you know, uh, legislation or regulations or, um, you know, questionable um, real estate practices have, have built up over time. And, and now we're seeing the consequences of that. So uh, I, I, I don't, it's a great book. I really recommend it. Thank you so much for joining us on Extreme Uncertainty today. It was a, a pleasure having you. Yeah, thank you both. Uh, enjoy the conversation and uh, looking forward to hearing a lot of your work in the future. I love that conversation. I'm starting to question why we're doing a podcast where we exclusively interview people who put us to shame. But in all seriousness, he is a truly impressive founder and it's incredible what he and his team have managed to build. No argument there. We should also say that Nick was recently named a 2020 Entrepreneur of the Year finalist by Ernst & Young. Our fingers are crossed for the October announcement. We're pulling for you, Nick, and we're actively spreading disinformation about the competing finals. You're not supposed to admit to that, Mike. Anyway, thanks to Nick and his team at ProTennis. You can check out all the AI-powered healthcare solutions Nick and his team are building at ProTennis.com. And you can follow them on Twitter, at ProTennis. Our episode was edited by our own garage band tinkerer, Mike Ravenscroft. Our music is by Reactor Productions. And our logo is by Priya Arunashalam. You can follow us on Twitter, at ExtremePod. And remember... Embrace the uncertainty. Thanks for listening.